or did you see how Tom didn't let me get up there and lead you all in singing? <clears throat> he knows better. All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 27. It's a long chapter. <clears throat> Marion has read for you the first portion. We uh, we skipped a few verses there. We'll allude to them. But um, essentially what you're getting is you're getting Luke's account of the journey uh, to Italy for the Apostle Paul, who has appealed um, his hearing. And so he is on his way to Rome so that uh, he can have his case heard there. <clears throat> and uh, along the way, obviously, as you've already heard, they've, been, uh, they've encountered a nor'easter, a uh, very large storm. This is a, uh, they're late in the season. Typically, uh, they would have not made this voyage this late. Um, but uh, and as you saw, Paul had given caution about them making the trip. And, uh, and they had gone ahead and made the trip anyways, and they encountered uh, the very reason that it wouldn't normally have happened, and that is uh, the Nor'easter. And so uh, they're in the middle of the storm. We're going to pick up in verse 27. We'll finish all the way to the end. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat, and they let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted... They lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill their prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, 
But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for your word. We're thankful for the work that you do in our lives. Though often difficult and hard, you tell us that it's always good. And so this morning, as we look As we seek to learn, we ask that your Spirit would drive these words and the general sense of the passage into our hearts to be used at a time when suffering is the plan for our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So we're near the end of the book of Acts. We have one week left. And as you've been following, as we've kind of been in the, the passage, we, uh, as we've been in the book of Acts, you've seen that early on we really had the, the story of what was taking place. How, how was the church, this young church growing? How were those things happening? And so we saw stories of many conversions. We saw how the Lord was, was working outside the boundaries of uh, the Jewish community and, and the gospel was going into the Gentile world. And, and we saw how challenging that was and how difficult that was and how God often uh, presented himself to uh, the apostles, to Peter and to Paul in various ways. And in order to overcome their fears, in order to come overcome their prejudices, so that the gospel could make those inroads into the places where it needed to. And that had to happen so that this young church, this fledgling church, could grow, so that the gospel could go out into further, further depths of the world. And then we moved into the very personal part of the story, Paul's Paul's struggles, his journey as he's gone, as he was accused early on, as he was preaching the gospel in various places on his missionary journeys, and ultimately that's where we're, we've ended up this morning. Paul is on his journey to Rome. He, he's in the middle of his court case, if you will. And so they are transporting him uh, from Palestine to Rome. And uh, in the midst of all of that, we find the story that Luke pre- presents for us. Luke is with him at this point. Uh, you see that early in verse 3. The next day we landed in Sidon. Luke's telling it from his account. Um, anybody in here a seafarer? Any boat boat people? Kind of a dumb question at the lake, right? Yeah, a lot of you are boat people. I don't know how many of you are big boat people. I know we've got a couple of big boat people in here, one right there, and a couple of other big boat people. Uh, the, the story is accurate. 
people, uh, seafaring sorts of folks have read, you know, meticulously. They've taken Luke's account and, uh, and they said, yeah, this is pretty, you know, fr- from a, from a non-seafaring person's standpoint, this is a pretty good account of what would have happened, what would have gone on. Uh, it's not a technical account. Luke's not a, Luke's a doctor. So he, um, he, he's writing with, you know, some certain level of intelligence, but he's not a boat person. So he's not writing it in a technical way. He's writing it into an account. And, and as people have looked at it, they've said, this is a pretty accurate account of what would have happened in this sort of scenario. The challenge for us is this. It's a story about a boat crash. <laughs> It's a, it's a story about Paul's journey and, and kind of what happens. But, but you'll notice that there are some details that show up in this account that help us understand what's going on with Paul. What, what's going on in the midst of all of this? And so there's, there are some authors that I, that I read this week, I spent some time with, and basically their approach to the passage was that it's a story about Paul's storm that he went through, but in the way that Paul deals with it, in the way that God deals with Paul, there are some things in the story that help us as we think about storms of life. We don't usually make that jump so easily. We try to get down in the text and, you know, and there are lots of fine, you know, Paul's giving us or, or, or Peter's giving us, you know, somebody's giving us details about how to work our you know, work the Christian life out or something like that. In this instance, it's really a story about Paul's storm. And what we want to do is try to kind of glean from it. Okay, when we're in storms or, or when, when suffering is the plan, what do I do? When I'm in the midst of a nor'easter, my own personal nor'easter, your personal nor'easter, where do I go? What do I do? How do I weather that storm in a way that brings glory to God? And so that's the, that's the way we're going to approach it. So let's do it this way. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll start with uh, with the first point. When suffering is the plan, stay focused on God's plan. When suffering is the plan, stay focused on God's plan. Um, the Bible often uh, talks about, and as one author described often talks about the general purposes of God and the specific purposes of God. And, and, and you can really boil it down, this author says, you could boil it down and you could say, uh, the general purposes of God are always good. They're always good. And, and we see this in, in a number of places, uh, Romans 8.28, for instance, and, and we're going to look briefly at Joseph's life, but but God's plan is always good in the general sense of things. The specific purpose is the godliness of His children, of His people, and and so we want to we want to kind of look at it through that lens as we think about this. When suffering is the plan, we have to stay focused on the fact that whatever God is doing in in that suffering, whatever He's doing in that storm. The general sense of it is, it's going to be good. Because he says that he is working everything to, together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. And so, 
while the, the difficulty may not be good, the, the, the storm that we're weathering or the suffering that we're going through, that might not be good in the, in the sense we would say, hey, you know, it's a good restaurant or, uh, uh, you know, it's a good play. It was a good concert. In the midst of our suffering, we wouldn't say, you know, this is really good. I love this. But in that general big sense, many times after you've gone through it, you can look at it and say, you know, that was difficult, that was challenging, that was hard, but it was good. The Lord used it in in good ways in my life. Let me see if I can illustrate it in a couple of ways. How many of you all have ever been to the Mississippi Gulf Coast? The Mississippi Gulf Coast. Don't lie. I'm not talking about the panhandle of Alabama and Mississippi. I mean, uh, Florida. The Mississippi. Okay. So if you were there prior to, keep your hands raised, prior to 2008, how many of you have been there in the last year of those? And this is, that's, okay. So if you were there before 2008, what happened in 2008? Katrina. If you were there in 2008, the Mississippi Gulf Coast was, there's a reason most of you have never been there, okay? Uh, and the reason is, there wasn't much to see. It, it just, it, it was, it was old, it was, it was fairly run down, it was, I'll just use, it was kind of gross, okay? Katrina hit. Katrina completely devastated the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We always heard about New Orleans, but Mississippi really took the brunt. And if you've been in the last year, what you'll notice is that a lot of that old debris, debris, if you're from the other island, uh, a, a lot of debris is gone. And, and, and in, a, in a remarkable way, having come through that storm, the Mississippi Gulf Coast is much it's a much more attractive place. Just be, let's just be honest. And, and the, some of those little communities are cute. And there are little stores and new restaurants. And, and much of it is almost attractive. It's Mississippi. Gosh. This, this cannot go on the Internet, okay? Um. But that's a product of having gone through the storm. So uh, right now we're in the midst. There's wildfires all over the place. But scientists say in a, in a forested area, it, it needs a good fire every now and then to kind of come through and to, to burn things out and to cause new growth to happen. And so many times forests, they, they undergo a, a major wildfire catastrophe 20, 30 years later, they're they're much healthier than they were prior. Is that right? Some of you timber people know that. And the storm is devastating. It's difficult. And, and, you know, it drives the wildlife. You know, all sorts of bad things happen. But the good that comes from it is many times uh, better. The forest is better for it. Um, I, I love to... Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated, probably because of the, the time frame, but fascinated by Chernobyl which was the big nuclear accident in the Ukraine, I believe, is where it was. And, and, um, and there's, there are people that have gone back. It's still a very dangerous place with the radioactivity uh, and everything. Um, and, and, you know, it was, they, just, they just left 
right? So the, 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 the government came in and, you know, they just, they just exported, mass exported everybody out of that area. And so all of those building, I mean, everything's just in complete disrepair as it all decays. But in the midst of all of that, they've gone back in. And the wildlife in the area of Chernobyl is just fascinating. There are all sorts of, the the ecosystem in a lot of ways has come back in a much healthier way because there aren't people there disrupting it. And so they have all these people that have gone in and they've done studies and they've looked at it and they said, wow, it's really quite amazing what's happening in the animal kingdom inside the Chernobyl zone there. You get the idea. Difficult storms, suffering, trials. Not good in the sense that we would say, hey, you know, it's this is great. But good in the sense that God is doing something there. And he's always working those things together for good. Paul says in Philippians 1, and this is one of my... Uh, It's one of my favorite passages, but he says in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. That is that specific work that God is doing, right, as he transforms us. And Paul says, he who began that good work. We don't often associate work, right? You wouldn't. Most of us are saying, you know, work is good. It's good in the sense of, hey, you know, we're producing something. But it's not like I, you know, lots of people just don't say, I love work. I don't love working, you know, the, the function of work. But Paul says that work that he's doing in us is a good work. Transforming us into the likeness of Christ. That's challenging. It's a challenging work. I know me. I know what it is taking to take the old Sam and to make him into the Sam that looks more like Christ. It's not a fun process, is it? The new you, to get to the new you, to get to the new me, is... It's tough. It's tough work. And it feels like a storm. Here's the second thing. When suffering is the plan, stay fixed on God's sovereignty and your responsibility. In verse 23, if you'll look at it, this is the section that Marion read. Paul announces, he comes and he says, look, Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Verse 26, Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. (laughs) That's Paul's confidence. So the angel of the Lord comes to Paul and says, Paul says in another spot a little bit later, not a hair will be lost from your head, right? He comes, 
The angel of the Lord says, look, you have to stand, uh, you have to stand trial before Caesar. You have to have that hearing. And in order for that to happen, I've got to rescue you. And I'll just happen to rescue all those other jokers with you. There's a whole sermon right there. And that is that you and I are a leavening influence in the world around us. Sometimes they get the benefit of God's grace because you just happen to be there in their midst. All right. And that's what's going on in the ship. Paul is going to, re- Paul is going to be rescued by God. And at the same time, he's going to rescue all those other rascals that are on the boat with him. And so Paul confidently goes to them and says, look, I am going to be, re- God has told me an angel appeared to me. I'm going to be rescued and you're going to be rescued with me. That's the sovereignty of God. That's This is God's plan. He's revealed it to me. It's going to happen. Have confidence in it. But that's what God told him. Oh, but by the way, does Paul have to do anything? Do they have to do anything while they're on this ship? Can they all just sit back and do nothing at this point? No. Look a little bit further down. A little bit further down, so things, uh, they've, they're, they've let down the anchors, they've taken the soundings, they know they're, they can't see, it's at night, but they're in some proximity to land and they're getting closer. And nobody knows what's going on. They've been, they've been beaten up, their, their ship is a mess. And then this happens, verse, or verse 29. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, They dropped four anchors from the stern, and they prayed for daylight, verse 30, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the sailors cut the ropes, and they let... Hey, so here's what's happening. They're scared... And what's going to happen is the storm's going to kick up and the, their ship is going to get tossed into the rocks and they're going to be, then they're going to be in the water, in the rocks with waves and wind beating them all up. And so the sailors know, because they're the smart ones on the ship, they know they're in a very dangerous place. And so they go up and they're pretending to be letting down some more anchors when what they were really doing was letting the lifeboat down and they were going to climb in it and get out of there. And Paul and the centurion catch on to the plan and Paul comes and he says to the centurion, if you let that happen, we're all dead. Now which is it? We're all going to live or we're all going to die? It's both and. This is one of those, this is a a prime example of, is God sovereign over this situation? Absolutely. Is Paul and are the sailors responsible in this situation? Absolutely. they They must do what they're supposed to do. Those sailors must execute their duties. If they're not on the boat, that means there are prisoners and soldiers left on the boat, and they don't know how to do anything with that boat. And so Paul just makes a very, this is a no-brainer. If the sailors leave, we won't survive. We need them. And oh, by the way, 
God's promised that not a hair on your head will be hurt. You see, those two, those two, we often pit against each other. We often want to just run to one. Man's responsible. Right? It's your job. It's, it's your, you've got to make that decision for the Lord and all of those things. You've got to do X, Y, and Z. And then some people are running to the other part and they're saying, God's sovereign over everything. They take it all the way to its logical. You don't have to do anything. And the truth is, both of those are true. He requires of you and He requires of me much. And oh, by the way, He's sovereign and in control of it all. I don't know how all of that works out. What I can tell you is, all of that is right here in this story. And Paul is focused on it, isn't he? He finds great comfort in God's sovereignty. And he finds great comfort in acting responsibly in the midst of it all and telling those sailors, don't you dare leave this boat. We can go back right here. If you've got your Bible, turn, turn to the, uh, turn to Acts chapter two. This is another, just a, a great illustration of God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Those men. They nailed him to the cross. Who purposed and planned it? God did. Two worlds that we often want to keep separate from each other, coming together. Listen, that is how you should see the suffering and storms of life. Is God sovereign over them? Yes. Did you put yourself in a position to make them worse and to bring them on? Yeah. A lot of times, yes. We do. We've not done what we should. We've neglected what we should have been doing. And because of that, we end up in the midst of a fierce storm. Is God using it? Is He sovereign over all of it? Yeah, He is. So there's great comfort there in the midst of great responsibility. When that responsibility is sucking the life out of you and it's dragging you down, that's probably the time you want to lean into the sovereignty of God. And when you want to lean into the sovereignty of God at the peril of doing the things you're supposed to do, then lean back into that responsibility that God has called you to be and to act as a faithful servant. And those two truths operating together bring great comfort in the midst of our storm.
Let's look at the third point. When suffering is the plan, stay secure in God's grace and goodness. You'll see in verses 34 and 35, Paul, Paul is very concerned with their well-being. This is an amazing passage in the sense that this relationship that Paul and the centurion develop, why the centurion has such great affection for Paul, we're not really sure. It could have been that he had travel mates with him, that he had uh, Aristarchus and he had um, Luke at the very least, and they, they made themselves look as if they were servants to Paul. And so here's Paul traveling, going to a hearing before Caesar with a couple of servants alongside him. And, and that could have been what, what made this, uh, this centurion somewhat predisposed towards Paul. But we're not, we're not sure. But Paul was predisposed towards them. It's really an amazing scene. And, and in this one, in verses 34 and 35, you'll see that Paul goes to them. They haven't eaten. It's been 14 days and, uh, and they haven't had anything. You've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything, Paul says. Verse 34, now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. And after he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. And he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged. And they all ate some food. And they ate so much, they all had their fill. And we find out it was a bunch. 276 people on the ship. And then what happens? Verse 38. They took the rest and they dumped it overboard. Presumably they were dumping it overboard because they needed to lighten the ship a little. They had run aground. And so they wanted to lighten the ship. Perhaps they were going to be able to make it to the sandbar in the sandy place. And then, and that was, that was kind of the plan. And so they were still lightening the ship a little bit. But what an interest. They don't have any idea what's going to happen. For all they know, a wind's going to blow back up and take them all the way back out to sea again. I mean, who knows at this point? But it's interesting. And I, I think telling. Paul gives thanks for the blessing of this food that they have. They all take it and they eat as much as they want. And then they take the rest of their provisions and they dump it overboard. What do you think it took to take their food and to throw it overboard? Just a wee bit of confidence that there was going to be a meal down the road? I would think so. I would think at this very moment as they're dumping the food overboard, they're probably thinking, well, I hope there's a Roos Chris up here when we land. I mean, what are you thinking when you're dumping your food? You've had your meal. You hadn't eaten for 14 days. You've been so focused on the, the, the danger and the struggle and everything going on. And then you, you take your provisions and you throw them overboard. How many of y'all have ever heard of George Mueller? So George Mueller lived in the 1800s in England. And he's primarily known for caring for orphans and starting schools. 
he individually cared for over 10,000 orphans. And he started over a hundred schools that educated over a hundred thousand students in England. This is a time when there wasn't compulsory public education. With me? He was accused of trying to raise the status of, of children who didn't deserve to have their status raised. You know, if you know what I'm talking about. Right? So they had a class system. And he was accused of raising the level of children's class by educating them. A hundred thousand students in over a hundred schools were trained through George Mueller. He wasn't independently wealthy. He never once asked for funds from individuals, organizations, or the public. It's estimated in the 50 years that George Mueller was doing this work that he was given, without asking, over $113 million. If you read the entries in his journal, he did one thing really well. He asked God. He trusted God and His grace for His provisions. And there are a multitude of accounts. One of the most famous ones is, is, is the milkman who was out on his run. The kids were there. They were, they were looking at George and the household staff to pr- produce this meal for them, and they didn't have anything to drink. And, uh, and so George prays, and then there's a knock at the door, and he goes and he opens the door, and it's the milkman. He says, look, it's, I'm not going to be able to finish delivering all this milk. It's going to go bad. I need some place to give it. Can you guys use it? Uh, yeah. They take it. And it's story after story after story that he recorded in his personal journey, personal journals about how the Lord provided. $113 million and the guy never put out. He wasn't crowdfunded once. He looked to God's grace and God's goodness. He trusted that God would provide for him in life. That money went to provide for missionaries as well. One of those was a guy named Hudson Taylor. Did we do a class on Hudson this summer? Somebody teach on Hudson Taylor or back in the fall? Yeah. So Hudson Taylor was a missionary that started the Christian uh, or the, the China Inland Mission, CIM. It's now Operation Mobilization. Okay, this is, it started in the 1860s. It's a it's a uh, OOM is still a mission organization today. But Hudson Taylor went to the interior of China. And what I love about Hudson Taylor was he went and he ministered the gospel to locals and then he taught locals to invest in, in their people. That's what he did. And um, he was a Presbyterian. Okay. And uh, and I've told you the story about my friend Dick Still, but I tell, I'll tell it again because Dick often uh, referenced Hudson Taylor and he believed that the China Inland Mission was responsible for his care when he was a prisoner of war shot down in Korea. The Chinese held him. 
And they held him in, in a one period, they was held in, a, in solitary confinement inside of a little village. And during that confinement, an old Chinese man came up to the cage. It's 1952. And he stuck a little roll of candy down through the top. They weren't supposed to interact with the prisoners. And he stuck this little wad of candy down through the top of Dick's confined area. When Dick was at his lowest, he said, he was thinking about how to kill himself. And he said, me Christian, me Christian. And when Dick got out, he went and he read on Hudson Taylor and he said, I have no doubt Hudson Taylor's ministry in the interior of China, that the leftover remnants of that ministry was that man in central east China in the middle of nowhere, knowing Christ and ministering to Dick. All of that because Hudson Taylor stayed focused on the grace and goodness of God. And that's what Paul did here. He focused their attention, did he not? He gave thanks for the bread. And then the act of throwing the food overboard, which Paul would have certainly participated in, was an act of focusing their attention on the grace and goodness of God, trusting that He would provide for them. There's no other way you do that. There's no other way you take all those provisions and you throw them into the ocean not knowing what will happen unless you what? Unless you've trusted the grace and goodness of God. And I think what Paul did was he held that bread up and he said, here, take and eat. And he gave it to them and they all ate. And then they went about the act of throwing it over. But by doing that, Paul signaled to them his trust that God would provide for them in the future. How in the world do you apply that? Well, you trust God's goodness every day for provision. You know, we got Publix, and it's difficult and challenging to do. But what about this? What about coming to the Lord? Instead of throwing food overboard, you throw your good works overboard. What if you throw all that stuff you're holding on to to present to God, hey, here, here's all my good stuff, and you just come to Him and you trust You trust that He has the provision for you. His grace, His faith, His mercy to you is a gift. And you throw your good works overboard and you present yourself to the Lord and you say, I'm trusting in your grace and your goodness and not mine. Listen, Paul says over and over and over and over, a righteousness not my own. A faith from you that is a gift Not by works so that I can't boast. And I think one of the ways for us to to throw ourselves at Him and let His grace and goodness be our central focus is to let go of some of that stuff we're holding on to. Some of our good... Paul talks about it in, in Philippians 3, right? I was all these things. Somebody said, you know, Paul... You know, if we shake our tree, some nuts fall out of it, right? That was a joke. Go shake your family tree, some nuts will fall out. Paul shook his family tree and no nuts fell out. I mean, it is an amazing family tree. But he took all of that and listed it all out. He said, look at all these great things I am, who I am, what I've done. I count it as trash. 
dung that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. So you focus on God's grace and goodness. What if you, what if you just throw all that other stuff overboard and you just look to God in the midst of your storm? Let's pray.